I'm going to ask you to take your Bible open to the Old Testament book of Numbers. The Old Testament book of Numbers will be looking a little bit later on at Numbers chapters 13 and 14. It's going to be an unusual message today about the middle of this message or perhaps a bit past the middle of this message. I'm actually going to ask four members of our student young adult building leadership team to come and speak to you about this project that we've been planning. And please remember, this has been months in the works. An awful lot of work has gone in to this particular plan. And I want to just introduce the members of the team because I think all of them are, are here right now for us. First of all, Stephen Bacon, who's the chairperson of our leadership team. Stephen, how about standing up, if you will? Thank you very much. And then we have Carson Self, who's in charge of our design team for this project. Next, Kim Wall. This is not in any particular order. It's in the order that they're seated this morning. Kim Wall, who's in charge of fundraising. Mark Smith in charge of our finance team on this particular project. And then Ryle Seam, who's in charge of construction once that construction begins. So that is our... Did I leave anybody out? Joe, yeah, Joe couldn't be here today. Joe Andrews is in charge of our prayer team. Thank you for that so very much. Last Sunday morning on Buggy Day Sunday, I shared with you a message about our past as a church entitled, What Do These Stones Mean? And we looked at that passage uh, in the book of Joshua when the Israelites stood on the eastern bank of the Jordan River, looking across into the promised land. And they had the opportunity to cross the Jordan, but it was at flood tide. It was the highest it got all year long, and the Israelites were a desert-bound slave people. They weren't used to crossing rivers. It was a formidable barrier for them. They had no experience with that. It was not until the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God stepped into the Jordan River in personal faith that the waters rolled back and the people crossed as on dry ground. As they took that step of faith and crossed over the Jordan, God commanded the priest to collect twelve large stones and to pile them up on the western, the, the, the promised land side of the Jordan River as a testimony of what God had done that day for them in stopping the waters and allowing them to cross the river as on dry ground. We likewise have in these bricks of our own church facilities, these five buildings that we have. Uh, We have powerful memories of how God worked in our past. We also can count the stones. We also can remember what God has done in the last 193 years of our history. But today we transition from the past to the future. From the generations that have been to the generations following. And our scripture for our, our scripture message for this morning is found in Psalm 48, verses 12 through 14, which says, Walk about Zion. Now, Zion was the mountain, not just a national park out west. Before it was a national park out west, Zion was the mountain upon which Jerusalem was built. And before it was the mountain upon which Jerusalem was built, it was the mountain on which Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. Zion, of course, ultimately God gave Abraham a ram in the thicket to sacrifice in place of his son. But Zion, of course, stands for Jerusalem. Go around about her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels. And this is what I want you to focus on. That you may tell the next generation that this is our God. Our God forever and ever. He will be our guide forever. This morning, as we consider the possibility of building a new student young adult center, we'll be impacting the future of our church, we'll be impacting the future of our college, we'll be impacting the future of our community and beyond. You see, 
what we decide to do today will tell the generations following about our faith in God. What we decide to do today will tell the generations following about our faith in God. Not somebody else's, but our faith in God. How strong is it? How persistent is it? How faithful is our faith? I'm going to share with you that message, kind of unusual. About the middle of it, we'll have four of our team members come up. But first, let me begin by reminding you of several things. Number one, First Baptist Church in Barnesville has a long history of being a multi-generational or family church. First Baptist Church in Barnesville has a long history of being a multi-generational or family church. Now, many Baptist churches today are mono-generational. I just made that up. Mono-generational means one generation. That means that only one generation is in the church. Normally senior adults. It makes it easy when it comes to choosing worship style. Because all you've got to do is choose the worship style for that generation. And it's easy to do that. But it's difficult to maintain a mono-generational church, especially a senior adult church, because they're always leaving us. They're passing away. And that's why so many of our churches, especially our First Baptist churches, in various cities in the South particularly, are struggling to survive. They're dying off. And they're dying off in great numbers. And it's because they have been mono-generational churches. One-generation churches having one style, not interested in any other style. And because of that, they've not had an impact on any other generation. And therefore, they're dying. When I came here to be your pastor 26 years ago, you were already a multi-generational church. We didn't use the words multi-generational back then. We called ourselves a family church. Difficulty in a multi-generational church, of course, is because there are a different number or a multitude of different generations, there must be a multitude of different worship styles. What we today call the Contemporary Christian music began back in the late 60s and 70s with a guy who was called the father of Christian rock. His name was Larry Norman. There's a picture of him right there. I used to have hair like that. Do you believe that? No, okay. Mine was blonde. It was just wavy, okay? So anyway. He was best known for a song about the rapture called I Wish We'd All Been Ready. But his funniest song, his best song to me, was one called, Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music? Let me share some of the lyrics with you. You You're going to like them. He sang, I ain't knocking the hymns, just give me a song that has a beat. I ain't knocking the hymns, just give me a song that moves my feet. I don't like none of those funeral marches. I ain't dead yet. Jesus told the truth. Jesus showed the way. There's one more thing I'd like to say. They nailed him to the cross. They laid him in the ground. But they should have known you can't keep a good man down. I feel good every day. I don't want to lose. I'm not going to sing. Don't worry. (laughs) Almost got carried away there, but I stopped. (laughs) All I want to know, all I want to know is why should the devil have all the good music? Now, Larry Norman, of course, was arguing for more than one worship style in the church. And that's where we are today. It's the difficulty of being a multi-generational church. You see, space is no longer our problem. When I first got here 26 years ago, we had one service, an 11 o'clock service. It was basically a traditional style. 
And we outgrew that service four months after I got here. So we knew that we had to go to a second service. We decided to start an 8.30 service. Identical to the 11 o'clock service, we had two services, one Sunday school, an ideal kind of situation. But then 2006 rolled around. Our 11 o'clock service was now too crowded to go on with just one service. So we had to go to three services. And we decided while we're going, you go to three services, you've got to have two Sunday schools. While we're going, let's go ahead and give different styles to the services. So 8.30 became traditional. 11 o'clock became blended. 9.45, your service became contemporary. And our, our problem now is not so much space. Our problem now is style. Every once in a while somebody says to me, why can't we just go back to two services? Let's do an 8.30 service. Let's do Sunday school for everybody at 9.45. Let's do a service at 11 o'clock. And I say, well, what service would you attend? They normally say, well, 11 o'clock. And I said, well, what style should that service be? And they say, my style, of course. Now you see the problem. Everybody wants their style. And that makes it difficult. The reason that we're a family or multi-generational church is because of the area in which we live. If we lived in an area like Atlanta that has many, many people, you can get by with having just one style or two styles. And you can still attract an awful lot of people because there are an awful lot of people up there. But when you're in a town like Barnesville, Georgia, you become a specialist church with only one or two generations that you're seeking to reach, you're going to have trouble surviving. You just don't have the people to do that. Being a multi-generational church means that everybody, every age group, gets a place at the table. That's why we've built our pastoral staff with members like our student or young adult minister, our children's minister. That's why I'm beginning to spend more time with the senior adults because they're feeling a little bit neglected. That's why we're looking for a children's minister right now. Because we're a multi-generational church and we want to have something for everyone who comes to the table. We're trying to minister to every age group. We're a family or multi-generational church. Secondly, I want you to remember that multi-generational churches remain relevant by making needed methodical changes. Think about those three last words. Needed methodical changes. There's no sense in changing things when they don't need it. That's moronic. Okay? We don't change just to change. We don't change for change's sake. We change when it's needed. Secondly, methodical. The word refers to the method of doing church. Remember what we've said. We said this just last week. We can't change the message of the church. Our unchanging message is for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We can't change that. It's in the book, right? It's in the book. We can't change the message of the church. We can't change the mission of the church. The Great Commission gives us our mission. Matthew chapter 28, go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. We can't change the mission, it's in the book. What about the methods? We must change the methods of the church if we are to remain relevant to the generations following. And changing methods is the tough part. Because you've got to to be a bit of a visionary to change methods and to change the right ones. Proverbs chapter 29 verse 18 says, Where there is no vision, the people perish. And God loves it when people whom we don't expect to have vision surprise us with their vision. Remember the story of an older woman who was a member of a church that was having their struggles. They hired a young pastor and thought that would solve the problem. Of course, it didn't solve the problem. It never does. 
But this young pastor had the good sense to call the church together in a town hall kind of meeting and share with them what the problem was. And that was, if you're going to reach a younger generation, you're going to have to use a younger style in some of your worship. And he began to talk about that. The meeting finally got closed. After the meeting was over, the older lady went to that younger pastor with a bit of a scowl on her face. And she said, Preacher, I don't like the kind of music these young folks like. And if that's what it takes to reach them, all I've got to say is, let's boogie. (laughs) There was an older woman with vision. There was someone that understood what you have to do to reach the generations following. Thirdly, the generations that came before us here at First Baptist prepared the way for us. The generations that came before us here at First Baptist prepared the way for us. The history of our church building speaks of that and how they prepared the way for us. Where you're sitting today is actually the third sanctuary this church had. The church started in 1825. This wasn't built until 1883. Our folks were visionary. The annex, the building behind me, was our first Sunday school area. Built in 1912. The L-shaped education building that we have off this direction was built in 1951 when we certainly outgrew that. In 1984, we decided it was time for us to build a Christian Family Life Center that would have additional Sunday school space, but also have a gymnasium so that we might uh, be able to host all kinds of events there. And a kitchen, because Baptists like kitchens. And then finally, we entered our children's building in 2007. And we understood at that time that we've got to build a building that is attractive to young parents that has good things for their kids, and we sacrificed, and we dreamed, and we were faithful, and God blessed that vision. And today we have a wonderful children's building. Those generations, including our own, had the faith to sacrifice and take God-inspired risk. What did I just say? God-inspired risk. Not recklessness. Okay, We're not trying to see how fast we can go bankrupt around here. Not recklessness, but risk. God-inspired risk. The, the, the risk that God, and we'll talk about why that's so necessary in just a moment, but the risk that God leads us to make in order to build up the kingdom of God right here in Lamar County, and we honor those generations that came before us today. And we pray that we might be so faithful. Then fourthly, once again, we should do our part in preparing the way for the generations following. Once again, we should do our part in preparing the way for the generations following. I'm going to ask four members of the team. I'm going to let all you guys kind of come up here at once, if you will. Okay, four members of the team, if you will. Uh, Jason Teal is coming up to talk about the need. Carson Self will come up and talk about the solution. In addition to that, Stephen Bacon come and talk about the cost. And finally, Kim Wall will come and speak to us about the how. Y'all come right on up, if you will. Uh, yes, sir. That's good. Look, I'm telling you, I can't, I can't script stuff like this. I can't plan stuff like this. All I can say is God is in the midst. Uh, one of our young adults that was here about six years ago uh, was venting to uh, someone just not 20 minutes ago, and they texted this. I am super thankful to FBC Barnesville. <laughs> I can't script that stuff. I'm just telling you. But the pastor asked me to speak to need. Uh, this morning, I want to do that very quickly and say this. The only need we have is the need to continue doing what God has called us to do. And that may require moving forward with facilities, energy, time, money, 
But that's our need. To give you a little idea, several months ago, uh, where our young adults met for worship and did ministry day by day, uh, became obsolete. We no longer could use the lighthouse. It was a, a facility that, that was ordained by God to be used for kingdom growth, and it was. And so many men and women uh, planted time and energy in that facility so that it could be used, and God used it to the fullest. In fact, the very thing that, that led us to a point of realizing we could not use that space anymore was the fact that we had nearly a 100 women in there for a worship gathering called the canopy and the floors began to shake and uh, not because the spirit of God was moving but because the beams underneath were deteriorating and so we had to move forward with that part of that process meant we had to find a place for our young adults to worship well we already had a facility we already had a place that was equipped for it it was happening we just needed to figure out some time frames and so we moved our young adults over to where our student ministry was already gathering and worshiping let me share a little bit about that space real quick it's about 2400 square feet of space it includes four rooms and a small storage room Worship in there can accommodate about 73 students, and that's based on LifeWay's recommendation of square footage per person. The educational space that we have back there is currently two classrooms that will accommodate about 31 students in small group. We have a gathering space there for students to be students, to play ping pong, to sit and talk and have conversation. Based on recommended square footage per person, that's about 22 students that are good for that space. Well, here's the issue with that. Present Sunday school average is about 45 to 55 students. That gives and takes depending on time of year. But our present average of worship on Wednesday nights, we have students, nearly 60, 70 students that are coming in week after week. Some weeks that's much larger. Some weeks it's a little smaller depending on sports seasons. But here's the the potential of what God can do through this church. You've already heard he works through this church, but here's the potential. Right now we have students that are across the board in six different high schools. That enrollment totals about 4,900 high school students. We have students scattered over eight different middle schools. have enrollment of about 4,300 students. You know, currently at Gordon, there's an enrollment of about 3,500 students that come in and out of town week after week after week. 850 to 900 of those students live on campus for nine months of the year, sometimes more, two miles away from our campus. You see, the joy is we have a lot of potential for ministry. We need to lay the groundwork so we can. And so that you have a picture, our young adult ministry is not just for college students. Uh, A couple of years ago, we refocused our ministry. We said 18 to 25-year-olds are who we need to target. That means some work professionally. Some go to college. And so I want you to know, uh, based on the last census data, we had about 6,600 young adults, 18 to 25, within a 20-mile radius of this campus. God can and will do a lot more work in the coming years if we'll prayerfully trust him and move forward. Our design team started working on the solution back in April. Um, The easiest, one of the easiest solutions was where to put the building because of the master site plan that we had developed uh, a few years back. That building will be located sort of in the corner of where Elm Street and Warsaw is. Uh, The main entrance to the center will be toward the center of the campus. That creates um, our... When we developed the master site plan, we also developed a Vision 2020, which said that we would provide a 
facility for, for the student center that would include worship space, fellowship, food service, recreational space, and Sunday school class. We felt like we've come up with that solution in the floor plan. Um, the towered reception area, uh, again, is in the lower left of the, of the picture there. That will be toward the center of the campus. Uh, there's the, the building itself is about 13,000 square feet. Provides worship for 269, which is the purple space there. Uh, an overflow space to the left of that in, in the recreational area will provide for additional 75 uh, seating. Uh, there are seven small classrooms. That's the green area on the right of the picture. Uh, kitchen and cafe area is the left, is the yellow area down at the bottom. Uh, there, again, the overflow area is to the left of the worship center. There are two restroom units in the upper left and lower right. It also has showers. And because we're good Baptists and we're stewards of things that God gives us, uh, we never throw anything away. So we have uh, provided adequate storage, which is that brown space up there at the top. Uh, we feel like that these, this will meet our needs uh, immediately and, and for the years to come. Um, there are, you know, you just look around this room, there are a lot of young youth, young children that will be utilizing this facility. You walk over to the preschool area, you know, we're looking at for the generations following. A lot of work's been done this past few months by the design team, planning team, uh, a lot of discussions and put together a great plan. So what do we have to look for now is how to, what the cost of that is. So next slide, as we looked at a, talk with architects, construction uh, groups, and you know, what the average cost would be for the facility of this size, just under 13,000 square feet at $160 per square foot. You're looking right, a little over $2 million um, of, to construct this, and that does include furnishings uh, that's incorporated into that price. And obviously we'll have to maintain this building going forward as well, so we also want to consider the... Um, what it would cost to operate the facility from a utility standpoint will be a primary one, the heating and cooling, the uh, lighting for that facility for the time it will be used. So that estimate would be anywhere from $7,500 to $10,000 per year. You know, currently uh, for our current facilities, uh, we're paying about $69,000 a year for all the natural gas, electricity, uh, and water that you know supplies the the current campus. And also we'll look for opportunities to reduce our energy uh, footprint, uh, make sure it's efficient, and so we can have a, um, you know, sustainable building that, you know, will be low lower, as low cost as possible for us going forward. So there's a lot of different things we can do, as you can see there, in those efforts for lowering energy costs. Uh, we will have some um, maintenance in regards to uh, custodial services and estimating that right now twelve dollars to $18,000 per year. And Hopefully we can do something with what we're currently doing today to, you know, minimize and reduce that as much as much as possible and uh, call on some of the, the youth to, to help out and, you know, while they're utilizing this, this facility as well so, uh, so they can have some ownership uh, for that. And to talk a little bit about a how to get there, uh, Ms. Kim. So we've got this fabulous design and building, very excited for our future generations. How are we going to pay for this? We obviously will need to do a capital campaign. We have done, for the last couple of months, we've interviewed, we've researched and reference checks on several companies, they're down to three, invited these three companies to 
come in to interview with us, and we selected um, Generis um, as a capital campaign fundraising company to help us with this. For those of you that were a part of the children's capital campaign, we did hire an outside company to come in. The company gave us direction, kept us biblically focused and based throughout the entire campaign. We did do a secondary and tertiary campaign. Had we not had the expertise of the outside company coming in, we would not have been successful in those other two campaigns. Statistically, if you have an outside company come in and help you with a capital campaign, you do raise more funds. Um, Mark Brooks is the name of the, um, and there's Mark behind me there. Um, he's the, he, he would be our representative uh, that would be working with us. He was a pastor for 20 years before he um, decided to help with uh, capital campaign. So he understands the church environment. He gets it. Um, he's already worked with Gar several times, and even though we haven't got a formal commitment with him, he did pencil us in, um, assuming the vote today would go um, in a forward direction for the building. But he brings lots of experience to us. He got some financial information from us prior to his interview with us to see if it was feasible for us to raise this kind of money. And the answer to that is yes. He felt like we could do it. He looked at uh, financials from several years, just our giving, attendance, and all of that. A successful campaign will raise from one to one and a half times your annual um, giving budget. So we could possibly, if we push just a little bit, we could possibly um, only have one campaign for this building. We may have to have a secondary campaign. It just depends on how our, our, our giving goes. But having an outside company and having Mark lead us uh, again, and the, the most important thing is to say to stay in a very biblical path with all of this. Time frame for this. Um, once we get approved to go ahead, um, what we will do is we'll do all the legwork for the campaign. The fundraising part of it will be in the fall before Christmas. Take a break between Thanksgiving and the New Year. And then we'll roll out, and if y'all, uh, for those of y'all who were around for the children's uh, campaign, we did smaller in-home group uh, meetings and those kind of things a little more per, on a more personal level. We'll do that, get some pre-commitments, and then we'll roll it out probably like mid-February um, to everyone, and we'll have, there'll be, I promise you, you will have all the information that you could ever want about the building and what's going on. We're going to keep everyone completely 100% up to date with this. We'll have a commitment Sunday sometime before um, Easter at least. Um, and then we'll have a big celebration for that. Once we receive half of the money for the building is when we'll actually start breaking ground and building the campaign. Not when we get half of it pledged, but when we receive half of it. Once we start building, the time frame that we have been given is anywhere from nine months to 12 months to actually have the building built. So if you kind of do the math on that, within, I don't know, we could do two and a half, three years. We could have a, the building up there. I'm very excited about I've got a bunch of my girls from my Sunday school class are back there. We don't have Sunday school classroom right now. We haven't had for a while, but we do okay. We do. But I'm very excited about this. I'm excited about the, the company that um, that we have interviewed. We feel like this is the best fit for our church and um, just really excited about this um, opportunity that we have. Thank you, Kim. Thanks, Olive, for sharing that information with you. Some of you have heard that already. You've been in our town meetings. Some of you haven't, but we wanted all of you to hear it this morning and to hopefully begin to digest it a little bit. Let me conclude your favorite word that I say. Let me conclude today 
by sharing that sometimes opportunities only come once in a generation. Sometimes opportunities only come once in a generation. I'd ask you to turn to Numbers chapters 13 and 14 because it shares with us the story of the children of Israel during Moses' generation on the very edge of greatness, on the edge of the Jordan River, getting ready to go over and across. And as they're ready to go across, Moses sends 12 spies to go into the promised land and to spy it out and bring back a report. And you recall that of those 12 spies, 10 brought back a bad report. They said, we can't possibly take this land. The people there are too strong. It's a good land. It's a wonderful land. But we can't possibly take this land. And Caleb said, no, yes, we can take this land. If we are strong, if we believe God will lead us into the land and we can take it, let us go into the land. But of course, the majority committee had the sway of the day. And because they did, the Israelites did not go into the land of Canaan. And as a matter of fact, in chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, it talks to us about the fact that the people decided, let's go back to Egypt. That's where we need to go. Things weren't so bad there. Let's go back to Egypt. Dear friend, I I want to remind you of something. There are only two directions a church can go, forward or backwards. One of the two. And when you choose not to go forwards, you automatically default into going backwards. The only two directions the church can go, forward and backward. Because of the risk, the Israelites were afraid to go forward in faith, so that whole generation missed the opportunity of entering the land that God had promised to His people. May I give you a principle here? There is no going forward in the kingdom of God without taking risks. You may always play it safe in your own personal family life. You may never take any risk. You may never particularly take any financial risk. But dear friend, there is no going forward in the kingdom of God without taking risk. How do I say that? I say that because going forward in the kingdom of God demands faith. And faith is willing to take risk. Faith is willing to take risk. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 tells us without faith it's impossible to please God. And the harsh truth is that because of their unwillingness to take risk, their unwillingness to obey God, to take risk, Moses' generation forfeited the opportunity of entering the promised land and they would never have it again. It was their one opportunity in their generation to go forward and enter the promised land and they blew it. And they never had the opportunity again. Fortunately, Forty years later, when the next generation stood once again on the banks of that same Jordan River and had the very same situation in front of them, they said, we believe that God can do this. And so we will go forward. We will cross this river. We will go into the land that God has promised us. For they had learned that sometimes opportunities only come once in a generation. Your friend, God's opportunity often only knocks once. We need to respond to that opportunity in faith and obedience. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this time that You've given us today. We pray, Lord, that You would help us to make the decisions that would please You. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.